0: You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Folks here in the room, familiar with the name D.L. Moody. Would you raise your hand if you've heard of D.L. Moody? Now, from my perspective, I can see the great majority of hands going up. Not everyone, but more than half, maybe three-fourths of you, have heard the name D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a very, very well-known evangelist in the 19th century. If I would think of a modern comparison, I would say he was the Billy Graham of that era. Um, I was doing a little research on the life of ministry of D.L. Moody and I uh, discovered an amazing statistic that he had the privilege of preaching the gospel, to, are you ready for this, to more than 100 million people. Now, friends, remember, this is the 1800s, the 19th century. This is before television. This is before radio. This is before the Internet. This is before microphones. (laughs) And he preached the gospel to more than 100 million people across these United States as well as in Europe. Many evangelicals have heard the name D.L. Moody. Another question. How many of you have heard the name Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball. Wow, a few, but very few, less than a handful. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, a simple Sunday school teacher at a church in Boston many years ago. And Edward Kimball himself had encountered Jesus Christ. He'd been saved by the amazing sovereign grace of God himself. And that gave him a passion to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ using his own simple gifts in his own community. And he became a Sunday school teacher at his church. And he had the interesting privilege of teaching a group of teenage boys. Don't you admire those who serve in capacities like that? Well, Edward Kimball was the senior high boy Sunday school teacher at his church in Boston. And as I read about him, what little we know, I was encouraged to find out that he recognized the fact that his ministry to these boys went outside the classroom. He served them not only when they got together for Sunday school, um, but he would pray for them and minister to them during the week as well. And there was this one 17-year-old boy in his class that worked, I assume, part-time in a shoe store there in Boston. Um, And so one Saturday, he went to that shoe store and looked up this 17-year-old boy, and pressed upon him again, his need to be saved, his need for Jesus Christ. And that 17-year-old boy was saved. And we know him today as D.L. Moody. That was Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, that 17-year-old boy working in a shoe store in Boston that was saved, by God's grace, through the ministry of this almost unknown Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball. So Sunday school teachers, parents, grandparents, take heart. Take heart. You never know how God might use you. A simple man sharing the gospel to a man who in turn had the privilege of preaching the gospel to millions of people. Join me please in the gospel of John chapter 1. The gospel of John chapter 1. As we read this passage today... We're going to pay attention particularly to two short phrases. If you leave this room today forgetting 90% of what I say, I hope you remember more than that. But if you forget 90%, I hope you remember these two phrases. Follow me, come and see. Follow me, come and see. Last Sunday pastor Mark faithfully led us through John chapter 1 verses 35 to 42. Many of you were here, not all of us were. But you may recall, if you were here, as Pastor Mark preached that passage, that John the Baptist, that's not the John that wrote the Gospel of John, that's another John. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was preparing the way. And so even before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist would go through Judea, calling people to repent of their sins and turn to God. One day, as John the Baptist was down by the river with some of his disciples, some of the men he was mentoring he saw Jesus Christ coming by. And you may recall in this passage in John chapter 1, verse 29, and it's repeated a little bit later in the 30s, how when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming by, he said to his men, his disciples, the guys he was mentoring, he said, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God himself has provided, drawing attention of his men away from himself and toward the Lamb of God, toward Jesus Christ at least two of those men in John's group listened to what John said, left their followership of John the Baptist, and started tagging along behind Jesus until Jesus turned and said, what are you looking for? And they, they wanted to spend time with him. And he said to them, come and see. Come and see Andrew and John. You know, I, I've always had a fascination since I was a teenager with Andrew He strikes me as a quiet man, but a quiet man who cared about other people. And when Andrew met Jesus Christ, what's one of the first things he did? Look in your Bible, we're reviewing quickly here. In verse 41 of chapter 1, uh, John records for us that Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we've found the Messiah, which means Christ, the anointed one. He brought him to Jesus. And and I I think of Edward Kimball and B.L. Moody. I mean, here's Andrew who we don't know much about and apparently a quiet man, a quiet fisherman. And yet God used this quiet fisherman to bring his brother, the much more well-known later, Apostle Peter, Simon Peter, who had the privilege of uh, preaching and writing two of the books of the Bible. Um, You see Jesus' band of followers, small but beginning to grow, And now read verse 43 with me. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now, if you have a Bible with you that has a map, or if you have apps on your phone that have Bible maps, you'll recognize that some of Jesus' ministry happened down south, in what we know as Judea. And about 90 to 100 miles north was a region known as Galilee. And that's where actually Jesus spent most of his growing up years. But he had been down there in Judea, and that's where he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and that's where he met Andrew and, and, and uh, Philip and John. And he says to these men, we're going up to Galilee. Now, that would have taken a while. That's 90 to 100 miles. And normally what they did is they went down to the river valley. They went down to the Jordan River Valley and they'd head north and then cut back in to the west, into Galilee, to the lake and the towns that surrounded it. And so these men that had gone down to Judea to hear John preach and to hear and learn from him, Uh, They were actually Galileans. And so Jesus talked to them, said, Boys, let's let's go home. Let's go up to Galilee, and I want you to come with me. And so these men left with Jesus and went north. Jesus meets another man. Here's going to be a fourth person who follows Jesus Christ. Look at verse 43 again. He, that would be Jesus, found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of, of Andrew and Peter. Who's Philip? What do we know about Philip? Not a whole lot, do we? He's obviously a Jew. He's obviously Hebrew, but he had a Greek name. That wasn't uncommon up in Galilee. Galilee was pretty heavily influenced by the Gentile culture. And so even though Philip was Jewish, he had a Greek name. By the way, if you're a horse lover, that's what Philip means, lover of horses. And he probably knew Andrew and Peter from their hometown connections. This verse is so simple, but folks, I want us to just stop for a minute and enjoy the flavor, the aroma of this verse. He found Philip. Let's just stop and think about that for a while. He found Philip. Isn't that good news? Isn't isn't that good news? Why, Why did Jesus come? I mean, Jesus lived in all eternity past in the glory, perfect place of heaven itself with the Father and the Spirit, and yet he came to this fallen planet. Why did he come? Now, the Bible gives several answers to that question, but one of them is fairly well known. I'm guessing some of you could finish this verse with me. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, when Jesus was at Zacchaeus' house. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and... To save those that were lost. The reason Jesus came was to seek, to find, to find his sheep and to save them. The Son of Man came to seek, to find, and to save. And so this simple little phrase that Jesus found Philip should be music to our ears. Because if we're here today as believers, isn't that your testimony? Isn't that my story? He, he found me. In our evangelical culture, sometimes we say, oh, he found Jesus. You know, I'm not going to argue with that, but do you know a more precious truth. <laughs> Jesus found him. Jesus found me. He sought me, and he found me, and he saved me. And John simply reports Jesus found Philip. And he said to Philip these two words. Follow me. What's that mean? What, what's that mean? What's that look like? Follow me. I mean those of us that have been hanging around the church for a lot of years, they're so familiar words we tend to just almost read over them. It's like you've yeah, seen that before. But what's that mean? Follow me. Friends, Jesus is not trying to build a fan club. I mean there, there are a lot of celebrities today who have a following. And if you watch celebrities with their following, whether it's in the entertainment world or the sports world, I'm not sure what the difference is, or even the political world, (laughs) there are people who have fan clubs. And there are people who get excited, passionate about their favorite athlete or musician or actor or whatever, until that actor or that athlete isn't so popular anymore or their politician disappoints them or whatever, and now they're off to somebody else. And there's like this wandering fan club that's always looking for a celebrity, someone to follow. Jesus is not looking for a fan club. When he says, follow me, that has weightiness, that has sobriety to it, that requires consideration. Will, will I obey that gracious command to follow him? Jesus shook people up sometimes with, with his words in Luke, Luke records in chapter 9 this. He said to them, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And Jesus paints a picture here that if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, you need to be all in all the time. You need to be all in all the time. He doesn't want hangers-on. He doesn't want fans. He wants committed followers. He says you're going to have to deny yourself. Do you know what that means? That means you say goodbye to your old life. You look at your BC life, as it were. If you could stand and look at your own life before Christ, and you say, goodbye. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not letting my old passions pull my strings anymore. I'm not going to follow my old ways anymore. Goodbye, self. Goodbye, self. Take up your cross, the symbol of death. I'm dead to my old way of life. Friends, when we have baptisms here, isn't that what we're symbolizing? Isn't that what we're visualizing? Have you been to any of our baptisms where we take that person who's professing faith in Jesus Christ and we put them under the water? It looks like we're burying them. That's quite intentional. It looks like we're burying them. And in that burial in the water, as it were, that symbolic burial, we're we're saying, he's saying, she's saying, I'm dead. I'm, I'm dead to my old way of life. I am denying myself. I'm saying goodbye, self. No longer am I going to live for that, for that one, those things any longer. And then thankfully we bring them back up out of the water. And it's like resurrection. It's like new life. And the person comes up out of the water symbolizing I'm now alive for Jesus Christ. My life for this day forward is following him. It's saying goodbye to my old way of life, denying self, taking up my cross, and following Jesus. Have you ever asked in simple terms, what what does following Jesus mean? What does it entail? I'm a simple-minded person, friends. In a passage that helps me with its simplicity is something John would later write you know John wrote the gospel of John but he also wrote four other books in the bible and one of them is the first epistle of John first John and in chapter 2 John writes this it's kind of astonishing I'll, I'll tell you what i'll read it and then i'll explain it briefly John will later write by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments Whoever says, oh, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, I'm reading from the Bible, friends, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God, is perfected, is completed. And John would later write these astonishing words that followership of Jesus Christ means this. You listen, you obey. You listen, you obey. King Jesus calls us to this, we listen, we obey. If we say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but we're not obeying, we're not telling the truth. Do you remember as kids playing follow the leader? Do you remember as kids playing follow the leader? In these days of video games, do people not play follow the leader anymore? (laughs) Okay, I like to play follow the (laughs) leader. So you have a leader, and you have to do what the leader does, right? And kids get this. I mean, my grandkids get this. They're young. You know, follow the leader. You have to do what the leader does. Well, John goes on in this passage, and he says this. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, we not only listen and obey, but we look and reflect. We look at Jesus Christ. We look at his value, his priorities, what mattered to him, what he did. And we say, that should be mirrored in my life. I, I want, I need to follow in his steps, like follow the leader. Jesus says, let's go this way. And if you're going that way and say, oh, I'm following Jesus, but you're going the opposite direction, it should be obvious. You're not telling the truth. Following Jesus means you, you follow Jesus. It means you go where he goes. You do what he does. You, you reflect him in your life. His values are your values. His priorities are are, are your priorities. What he's passionate about, you're passionate about. So you listen and obey. You look and follow. Jesus says, follow me to Philip. You know, when you think about what following Jesus actually entails, you might even pause and say, whoa, like, I didn't realize it was that serious. All in, all the time. I mean, who would ever obey that gracious command? Who would ever have The courage, the guts, the oomph to say, okay, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll die to myself. I'll be all in. How did Jesus ever gather any followers with followership described like that? You know, in a few months, we're going to get to John 10. And in John 10, Jesus gives us this encouraging reminder. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow." And in God's sovereign grace, he gives some people ears to hear. They hear his voice, and they follow. And clearly in this passage, as simple as this little short verse is, Philip had ears to hear. And when Jesus said, follow me, Philip, he did. So now what's Philip going to do? What's this new Christ follower going to do? Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here's this new believer, this new follower of Jesus Christ, and one of the first things he wants to do is to go tell his friend. He wants to go find Nathaniel and tell him. And can you picture this in your mind? Here, Philip goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel and he's, he says, Nate, he says, we found him. We found him, Nate. You know all those Bible studies we had? That would be the Old Testament for them. Remember all those Bible studies we had about the prophet greater than Moses? The king greater than David? The the serpent crusher? Remember all those, Nate? Remember all those things we read in the Bible about the Messiah? We found them. We we found them, Nathaniel. We found them. We found the Messiah. You you hear the passion in his Please, just call to Nathanael. We found him. We found him. Jesus of Nazareth. That's a little bit of a downer. But did you notice how Nathanael responds? <laughs> Look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Now, that might sound like he's dissing a nearby town. I mean... Nathaniel was from the town of Cana, Kana, which is just about eight miles from uh, Nazareth. Now, it, you know, you think, oh, is there some sort of small-town rivalry going on here? It's kind of like the football team's around here, the basketball team's around here playing the next-door high school, you know? It's not that. You, you know what I think Nathaniel's saying? He's saying, Phil, think about it. Where's the Messiah supposed to come from, Phil? What, we've studied the Bible... Where's the Messiah from, Philip? He's from Bethlehem. Remember that, Philip? Micah 5.2. Remember what we read in the book of Micah? The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, the city of David. He's going to be a descendant of David, born in David's hometown, Bethlehem. Philip, come on. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, think about it. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Can any good thing come from there? You know, you you read that, and don't you just want to lean into the story? (laughs) Don't you find yourself kind of drawn in here and want to lean in and say, Nathaniel, just wait. You're going to find out. Nathaniel, please don't. Just walk away. Nathaniel, give it some time. You're going to find out he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the city of David. He didn't move to Nazareth, though he was, you know, what, four or five maybe. He grew up there, but that's not where he started. He started in Bethlehem, Nathanael, and you want to lean in. Nathanael probably isn't going to learn that right away, though. Nathanael had his doubts, didn't he? But what did he do? What did Nathanael do? Philip said, come and see. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably witnessed to somebody, a classmate, a coworker, a relative, a neighbor, you've witnessed to somebody. And if you've done this more than once, you've probably met resistance somewhere. Right? I mean, sometimes, I mean, how did you respond when you first heard the gospel? Did you respond with a measure of skepticism? Resistance? It's not uncommon. But, you know, sometimes if we're telling our non-Christian friends, classmates, co-workers, relatives, if we're telling them about Jesus Christ and they push back, Sometimes our tendency is to just quit. Well, I guess they don't want to hear it, you know, and you just don't say anything else. Or you might even get argumentative. I was recollecting as I was preparing the sermon of my ugly attitude as a teenager. That the Lord had saved me as a boy, and he placed in my heart a zeal without knowledge, I think, a zeal without grace, maybe, I should say. And I remember one time witnessing to this girl in my sophomore class in high school. And boy, I was... I was pounding the gospel. <laughs> and she just refused to believe. And I can distinctly remember looking at this gal and saying, how could you be so stupid? It's right there in the book. How could you be so stupid? I Win friends for Jesus. <laughs> You know, a lot of times we debate our non-Christian friends more out of pride than love. We just want to prove to them how much we know and how much they don't know. But thankfully, Philip didn't do that with his buddy Nathaniel, did he? What did He He didn't give up. What did he say? When Nathaniel pushed back, what did he say? Say it out loud with me. What did he say? Come and see. Isn't that great? I mean, it is, it is simply profound. It is profoundly simple. Philip just looks at Nathaniel and says, Nate, come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And you know how many times with our friends or relatives that are pushing back, wouldn't it be just wise and gracious if we just said, come and see. Tell you what, would you like to read the Gospel of Mark with me? Would you like to read the Gospel of John with me? We're studying that together. And you have your homework done when you go talk to them, <laughs> if you're taking notes during the sermon. Just, Just come and see. Let's, let's look at him in his book. Or if you say, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, invite them to someone else who can show them Jesus Christ. Maybe your life group or a, a Sunday school class or a worship service where you say, well, just come with me. I want you to hear about Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want, I want you to hear him sung about. I want you to hear him preached. I, I just want you to be exposed to Jesus Christ. Just come and see. Even though Nathaniel had pushed back on Philip saying, come and see, what did he do? He went and saw. <laughs> Don't you have to respect Nathaniel? Even though he had his doubts, he, he did, by God's grace, go and encounter Jesus. Look, let's read now the rest of the chapter. It's 47 to 51. John chapter 1, starting at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, So Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and he makes this comment about Nathanael. He says, look, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. We would say in our culture, our vernacular, something like, here's an honest man. Here's a transparent man. Here's a man who's not putting on airs." Now, why would Jesus say that? I mean, it's a kind thing to say, but it's also rather curious. Why would he say that? Here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why he said it, but... Um, he's for some reason reminding us of the heritage of himself and his fellow Jews. The Israelites were named after whom? This is not a trick question. The Israelites were named after whom? Israel. Israel, Thank you. Yes. (laughs) The Israelites were named after Israel, who was actually, that was actually a name given to him later in life. His birth name was what? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob was known as a deceiver. He was known as a deceiver. In fact, that got him in trouble because he was a deceiver. And God had to meet with him and change him. And in changing him, he gave him a new name, Israel. So Jesus sees Nathanael, an Israelite, and says, well, here's a descendant of Jacob. Here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceiver. Here's an honest man, a man who's open and transparent. He's not putting on airs. Now, I read this passage probably 20 times. I'm serious, probably 20 times before something struck me. Can I share it with you? Nathaniel was a good man. He was a good man. He was virtuous. He he had qualities that are admirable. An honest man, a man who wasn't putting on airs. But even this good man needed Jesus Christ. His virtues, his Goodness wouldn't make him right with God. His goodness was not enough to make him acceptable to God. This good man, this virtuous man, still needed Jesus Christ. Jesus said, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And then he says, you know, Nathaniel says, wait, wait, you're just meeting me for the first time. How do you know me? And Jesus said, before before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now that might be pointing back to a particular incident, but in the Hebrew culture, you know, they didn't have air conditioning back then. And uh, if you needed a quiet place to pray and think, meditate on the word of God, you'd try to find a shady spot. A fig tree might make a nice place. And it became almost a colloquialism to meditate was to sit under the fig tree. You know, that kind of became that way of expressing, I, need, I just need a time to, to pray and to meditate. I'm going to go sit under the fig tree. And so it could be that's what Jesus, we don't know for sure, but it could be that's what Jesus is alluding to. He's saying, Nathaniel, I, I saw you divinely, supernaturally. I saw you whenever you were meditating on the word of God. When you were praying and meditating on the word of God, I, I, I'm very aware of that, Nathaniel. I saw you do that. Which, again, let me make a pastoral aside. Nathaniel's religion was not enough to make him right with God. He apparently was a young man who studied the Bible, meditated on it, prayed. But his religion, his religiosity, was not sufficient to make him right with God. He still needed to meet Jesus Christ. So Nathaniel was a good man, a religious man. And yet his goodness, his religion, was not sufficient to make him acceptable to God. He still needed to meet Jesus Christ. So Nathaniel hears Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree, and his heart just melted like butter in a microwave. I mean, he just you you listen to this and the words just start pouring out. Rabbi. He says, You're you're the Son of God. Now, my friends, that is not insignificant. It's probably an allusion to Psalm 2. The Son of God is a statement of divinity, it's a statement of being deities. He's saying to Jesus Christ, you're God, your God come in the flesh. You're, you're the Son of God. And then he keeps going, doesn't he? He says, verse 49, you're the king of Israel. An allusion back to 2 Samuel 7, that he's, he's the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah, the promised the Savior that has come. In Nathaniel, the words just come out passionately of who Jesus is. And then Jesus says this. This interesting statement that probably just blows right over us. He says, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see greater things than this. When he says, you will see greater things, that's plural, by the way. He says, all you guys, all my followers will see greater things. And then he says, particularly to Nathaniel, truly, truly. When Jesus says truly, truly, some of you have translations that have amen, amen. In John's gospel, when he quotes Jesus, amen, amen, truly, truly. There's weightiness. It's like, listen up, pay attention. What I'm about to say has weight to it. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, are you listening? Are you paying attention? And so, even though what he says next might not click with us right away, hearing that amen, amen should make us lean in and say, okay, I'm not sure I get this, but I want to. What's that mean? What does that mean? You will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, Jesus. What does that mean? You're telling me that that has weightiness to it. That has seriousness to it. And I, I should, I should need, I need to know what that means, Jesus. What's that mean? Now, I recognize the fact that not all of you will be familiar with this passage, but some of you will. Can you recall any place else in the Bible where heaven opened and there were angels descending and ascending? Jacob's dream, Jacob's dream Genesis 28. Back in Genesis 28, there's another allusion to Jacob, interestingly. Jesus is using that story, that real encounter that Jacob had with God out in the desert. If you go back and you read that portion of Genesis, Jacob the deceiver had deceived his dad and wrongfully got the blessing of his dad that belonged to his older brother Esau. And now Esau was madder than a hornet and he wanted to kill his brother, so Jacob had to run. And Jacob's running, literally running for his life. He's out in the desert, so tired he needs to sleep. So he finds a rock and makes a pillow out of the rock. And that night, with his head on that rock, God gives him this dream. And in Jacob's dream, heaven opened. And there was like a ladder, a staircase or something, going from heaven to earth, with angels going up and down. Jacob wakes up, and he's shaken up. He wakes up, he's shaken up. And he says, I just met with God. God's in this place. And he takes his rock pillow and he sets it up like a pillar and anoints it with oil. And he gives a name to that place. He calls that place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. And in essence, Jacob was saying, "God, God was here. God was here. This is Bethel. This is the house of God. And now years later, 2,000 years later, Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, That pointed to me. That pointed to me. I am the embodiment of Bethel. I am the house of God. I am God come down to meet with people. I am God come in the flesh. Nathanael, you're going to see greater things than you've already seen. You're going you're to see this. You're going to recognize. You are going to recognize that I am God come to man Son of Man has come. And Jesus alludes to himself as Son of Man. And and I want to point this out because we're going to see this as we go over this next year through the Gospel of John. You're going to see this phrase, Son of Man, over and over and over again. You know, Jesus called himself a number of things, precious things that we're going to enjoy. uh, We're going to enjoy chewing on and meditating on when he says things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the true vine good shepherd. You know, Jesus describes himself with some glorious words. But he referred to himself most as the son of man. And we read that with our western ears and we kind of shrug our shoulders like that's it not that important. Oh, wait a minute. Let's stop. Let's think. What's he mean? He doesn't say a son of man. A son of man could just mean I'm a human being. But he doesn't. He uses a more particular phrase. He calls himself the son of man. And it's an allusion back to the prophecy of Daniel. That in Daniel chapter 7 we meet this man who had divine attributes. And he's called the son of man. And Jesus uses that phrase, that descriptor of himself more than any other. He calls himself the son of man. You've ever wondered why he didn't call himself Messiah more often? And again, we're reading between the lines, but the Jewish people had this concept that the Messiah would be a political military person. And so when they were looking forward to the Messiah, they're looking for a political military hero, a rescuer. And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. So I think Jesus probably did not want to play into that prejudice toward a political military Messiah. And so instead he often referred to himself, more often he referred to himself as the Son of Man. I'm the one of whom Daniel prophesied. I am God come in the flesh. Powerful term. We're going to see it more and more in the Gospel of John. We talked about Philip encountering Jesus Christ. We talked about Nathaniel encountering Jesus Christ. Can I share with you another encounter? You, I, we encountering Jesus Christ. Jesus offers a gracious command. And I think sometimes we miss the imperative. We, we forget that it's a command. When Jesus says, come, follow me. Sometimes in our evangelical world, we look at that as kind of a, an option. You know, it's kind of like going to a buffet and you say, no, I don't think I'll take that. I think I'll take that. And, and we look at come, follow me as like one of those options. You take it or leave it, your choice. No, this is a command, a gracious command from the lips of the King of Kings. He says, follow me. Ignoring that command has serious consequences. It'll make the hair rise up on your neck to read what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He talks about people who disobeyed the gospel. Disobeyed the gospel. And on whom fiery judgment will come. You read it and it brings tears to your eyes and you realize the sobriety of rejecting the gospel. Rejecting the gracious command, come follow me. When Jesus told Philip, come follow me. When he says to Nathaniel, follow me, he says to us, follow me. What's that mean? What's that mean? What's that look like? We we already said that Jesus wasn't trying to build a fan club. He wants people that are all in all the time. And so I ask you, Have you obeyed the gracious command of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your old way of life and in faith turned to Jesus Christ and say, I'm with you. I'm going to live the rest of my life for you, with you. I want to follow you. And then if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, are you going to your friends and family members and saying in the simple words of Philip, come and see? Come and see. Ninety percent of people come to faith in Jesus Christ say they came at the invitation of a friend or family member. Ninety percent. That makes you and me evangelists. We're all out there telling our friends and family members, you've got to come see. you got to come see Jesus. Can I introduce you to Jesus Christ? Come, look at him with me, study him with me, see him, believe in him, follow him. Are we intentional in telling our children and grandchildren? And as a grandpa, I think about this. As a dad, I think about this. As a pastor, I think about this. It, it is easy for us to naively assume because there are good kids growing up among us that they're okay with God. Good kids. Praise God for his grace to you kids, keeping you from where your heart would take you, apart from the intervention of your parents, grandparents, pastors, Sunday school teachers. Good kids. Good kids need Jesus Christ. Religious kids need Jesus Christ. Are we intentional as Sunday school teachers, as parents, as grandparents, looking at the kids and with passion saying, come and see. Come and follow Jesus. Join me, son. Join me, daughter. following Jesus Christ. He is worth it. Your friends family members, your classmates, your co-workers, come and see. Some of you are here today and you've not obeyed Jesus' gracious command to follow me. I'm going to ask you today, 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 to put your faith in Jesus Christ. There was no reason to wait. You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation today you hear the gracious command of Jesus Christ, follow me. And today, you say goodbye to yourself. You take up your cross.